lovely sounds of New Carnival introducing you guys to the Not The Top 20 podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell and George Ellick is with me. We're doing EFL content. This week, a huge weekend in the championship. In fact, it's been a busy 10 days or so in that division with three game weeks having taken place. FA Cup action, not a classic FA Cup second round weekend. I think it's fair to say... We'll pick out a few notables from that towards the end of the podcast, but fair to say our eyes will mostly be on the third round draw on Monday evening at 7pm. Thankfully, there's so much to get into at second tier level. It was goals galore in the champ on the weekend, George, and we have to start with a 7-0 because I went back through the last, I think, eight, nine seasons in the championship, just the champ, not League One and League Two as well. Very few occasions of a team scoring seven. Just six other teams scoring seven, and none of them to nil since 2011-12. But, of course, there is the Bournemouth 8-0 win in the 14-15 season that was. We had Norwich beating Reading 7-1 since we've been doing the pod. That was 2016-17. I can barely remember that one. I do remember West Brom beating QPR 7-1 last season. QPR collapsing at that stage very early on in the campaign. Uh, but this Brentford... Luton 7-0. The sad thing almost is that it doesn't really feel like a fluke. It was Brentford at their best and finishing their chances, but a Luton side that made it so, so easy for them. Yeah, it's been a bit of a, not a watershed weekend, but I think we're going to get on to the other team, but two teams who have at times been very dominant this season, but have, have struggled to turn that dominance into dominant victories, getting um, you know <laughs> straight through teams and, and, and putting on shows for their fans. And in this case, I think we can all agree this was probably coming for a while. Uh, Brentford in seventh position, but still being seen, I think, by most people as genuine promotion contenders uh, on the back of a difficult midweek loss um, away at Blackburn, which I think took well took me by surprise and I think a few other people. But this was always going to be difficult for Luton, a team who are pretty quickly on the slide. They're currently in 21st position. They have now conceded the most goals in the league after this game with 40 and for Graham Jones, it does feel like things are, are, are pretty quickly unravelling. And, and Brentford are probably the one team that you don't want to face, especially at Griffin Park, when you are a little bit vulnerable, when you're struggling to keep goals out. And um, and as ever, you look at the, the Brentford starting lineup, And if you're an opposition team and you see Mbomo, Benrama and Watkins as a three, that's going to give you enough nightmares without having to contend with a, a hat-trick scoring De Silva. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Jensen obviously getting his first goal for the club with a very underrated finish, I would say. A nice little kind of shimmy through the legs into the near post as well. So They, they came into the game with so much swagger, didn't they, Brentford? And having Jensen and De Silva, uh, rather than perhaps Makocho, who we know to be a very effective player uh, in games, maybe against the top teams, but perhaps not quite as creative uh, when it's a, an opposition who are going to give you the ball all the time. Uh, Jensen scored a wonderful goal. It feels like in the last few weeks, some of his performances have improved. He was certainly the B's player who I think fans were uh, most disappointed with after maybe two months of the season. But uh, a lovely finish showing what he can do on the weekend. And De Silva's a player that it's been amazing to see him develop, even just over the last few months, really. It was probably six weeks ago that we saw him score a beautiful goal at Griffin Park against Bristol City. Uh, at that point, he had just started really to, to be considered a absolute nailed on starter for this Brentford team and now you wonder why it was ever in question because he is quite an unusual player it's it's a the the size of him for a start his height is quite notable for a central midfield player but mixed with unbelievable skill we saw an individual piece of skill at QPR that you didn't even believe was real because it was so ridiculous and so inventive um, and we saw that in this game against Luton, he was just toying with them at times in a way that Brentford were across the whole 90 minutes. But De Silva and Ben Rama, of course, uh, notably as well. But that powerful and seemingly very accurate shot that he has from the edge of the box has given them something that they, they lacked over the last few years as well. So really good news for, for Brentford. Maybe it's because we hold them to quite high standards and we do rate Bs. But I feel like both of us off the back of this are leaning towards discussing Luton really and feeling like this game taught us more about Luton or chucked up more concerning things about Luton than teaching us anything potentially about bees. Um, I imagine in the second half, it was 5-0 at half time. I read a piece the other day about when Spurs beat Wigan 9-1 in the Premier League 
uh, I can't remember, nine years ago maybe. And Chris Kirkland was a goalkeeper that day and he said it felt like the clock was stopped. Like every time I looked up, I thought there'd been 10 minutes and there'd only been one. I can imagine that's how James Shea was feeling uh, ever since his mix-up with Potts caused the first goal. Uh, you were surprised at Graham Jones's words afterwards that we saw on the Quest Highlights show. And it's not the first time that we've referenced Graham Jones and, and post-match interviews. Yeah, I, I think that Graham Jones must must be aware and probably was aware coming into this season that he was taking over a club where finishing 21st was probably quite a good effort. And and he, you know, even in the post-match interview, he credits, well, I think himself, but he credits the club with a couple of decent performances recently. He talks about how this was the same team that beat Charlton. It was the same team that lived with Leeds for, for you know, until the 92nd minute when they conceded the, the winner. And he says this, these, this was the same team, this is the same tactics, and I feel incredibly let down by the players. And that just, so much about that rings alarm bells. Firstly, that he thinks it's easy enough that his job is just to pick the same team that, that wins, send them out with the same tactics. I mean, what does that even mean? Mm. These were the same tactics. What you, <laughs> is that him saying, I told the players to do exactly the same thing again? That just shows a complete if naivety. you're approaching a game at Griffin Park the same way you're approaching a home game against Charlton, then I suggest that is... Yeah, and... Uh, it, it, and it, to me, it kind of shows a, a worrying lack of understanding about what his role is. And then to, in effect, what he's doing by doing that, by saying it was the same team with the same tactics, he's giving himself credit for the win against Charlton, for the good performance against Leeds. And then to say that he feels very let down by the players, he's absolving himself from any of it by he, him saying, you know, I've told them to do the same as what they did before and they didn't do it. Well, I mean, I'm sorry, Graham Jones, but if uh, on the back of what you're saying, I think you're you know, not fully to blame, but you've got to shoulder part of this because that shows a worrying lack of, of just nous about how to set up a team, how to approach matches. and But also Brentford are, are nothing new in this league. No. And as much as they don't play exactly the same way under Thomas Frank than they did under Dean Smith, but they are a known quantity. And by and large, it feels like teams have a pretty good idea of how to at least try to, to take them on in a way that can be quite... Effective. Let's not pretend that Brentford have been blowing teams away all season. But Luton and Graham Jones decided to not do what other teams do and, and try and deny them space in the final third, try and sit back. And maybe it's that they're not well suited to that. The Luton fans are pretty clear that their weakest individual players are all playing at the back, basically, in that back five. I would go as far as to say that their midfield players, where they are weakest, is probably defensive midfield players, players that can at least make it a little easier for the defence by giving them a little bit more protection. This diamond formation did absolutely nothing to stop Brentford progress the ball through the midfield, out into wide areas, where Rico Henry and Dalsgaard looked very, very comfortable, where Ben Rama and Mbermo are tucked inside, ready to beat their man and create, where Watkins is, is playing as the pivot with his back to goal, but also getting on the end of things. Uh, everything about that was a disastrous day for, for Luton. I think we're starting to see, because there are some very good teams in this division, uh, teams like Leeds and Brentford and the way that they impose their game on others. Generally, teams do play quite a reactive style against those sides. Generally, they they look to sit deep. They look to exploit them on the counter-attack. Luton decided not to, not to do that at all. And we're finding out which teams are organised enough, have good enough defenders and a good enough defensive system to play that sort of back foot game, uh, to defend well and, and to be very good in transition. And sadly, on, on this evidence, Luton are definitely not one of them. Uh, Izzy Brown's injury compounding a, a terrible, terrible day. Let's move on, lest the Luton fans decide they never want to listen to this podcast again. Uh, Bristol City 5, Huddersfield 2 was another eye-catching result from, from the weekend. Georgia, this was Bristol City at their best, really. I think we both had a look through some of the stats afterwards. There are a few things that that were maybe surprising given the scoreline. They didn't have a huge amount of the ball, maybe 40-60 in favour of Huddersfield. Um, but I got thinking and, you know, they did take their chances at a you know pretty much every main chance they got and that won't always happen. But the best we've seen Bristol City in the last few years and they've been a team in the top half of the championship for the last few years, they've never really impressed me that much as a possession-based team, to be honest. It strikes me that this system that they played to beat Huddersfield, it was a 4-4-2, really, with Brownhill off the right, Eliasson off the left, who starred, Jeju and Vyman as a two up front. They're not the most widely feared 
strikers in the division, but they are a they can be a pretty good combination of strikers. I, I thought this was, yeah, Bristol City at, at their best and notably not trying to knock it around and trying to do nice possession-based things, which I reckon Lee Johnson would prefer them to be able to do, to be honest. But that's not really them. Yeah, I think the stats here probably go the opposite way to what you'd think with um, Huddersfield's dominating possession. As you mentioned, I think a, a Danny Cowley versus Lee Johnson matchup, you'd probably expect it to be the other way around. And um, part of that, of course, will be because... Um, Huddersfield did spend the majority of the game behind. Um, they were 2-0 down after half an hour. Um, worth pointing out here that um, Congolo, I think, can feel very harshly done by because it was a pretty blatant foul for the own goal where he was, I mean, we've all seen it done before. Where he's jumping for a, for a header. He's probably not going to get anywhere near it and he just gets pushed in the back and basically is pushed into the ball and kind of faces it in from, from point blank range. Um, I don't know how that was given, but, but either way, I mean, I, I really agree about Bristol City. Um, I think that they have been fairly lucky at times this season, but this I don't think was one of them. Um, they may well, not unlucky have... with injuries, but lucky maybe within games. Within games, yeah, exactly. Um, Adam Nodge's return I think has been fairly significant. I think he's a, a kind of controlling um, presence in the middle of in the middle of the pitch that they didn't necessarily have before, um, enabling Brownhill to be more of a creator from wide areas. Um, I know that Hanoa Masengo um, is seemingly. Had a very good game here as well because um, I'm one of the few people that hasn't been particularly impressed with him so far, irrespective of his age, just in terms of actual whether he's uh, up to the task at the moment to be playing centre midfield for a championship team. But he had a good game. Um, and also just interestingly looking at the shot maps as well because um, the you know the shot count was 12-all, which doesn't really suggest it's a 5-2 game. But 11 of Bristol City shots were taken inside Huddersfield's box, which shows they're getting into good positions. The shot locations are decent. Um, and that has also been a, a bit of a concern of mine. And I do think that Eliasson starting has to make a pretty big impact there um, because having Eliasson and Brownhill playing on, on each on each flank, obviously Brownhill being more, having more of a tendency to come inside Eliasson, more of, a, of an out-and-out winger. Um, they're two very creative players who offer something different and, and just make them a much more balanced side. Um, for, and for Vyman and Jiju, two guys um, who have very different styles as well, but Vyman being his movement in the box being fantastic and Zizou being able to, to lead the line effectively. This team now, look, the team we saw on the weekend, I think has a much better balance to it than, say, the team that we saw a couple of weeks ago playing in the live Sky game. Yeah, Eliasson, sensational. He's, he's sort of undeniable now. And I mean that in the sense that it feels like only recently that he has been starting games regularly for Bristol City even though there were so many times where he was coming off the bench and creating something from nothing, his dribbling style makes him very tough to stop. His delivery with his left foot, especially in swinging crosses, uh, is so difficult to defend against. It's such a good skill uh, at any level, but especially when you've got Jeju in the middle. And it felt like he wasn't always getting the game time that maybe we would expect, potentially down to what he does or doesn't do maybe off the ball and, and maybe limitations there. But I noticed Johnson talking about him after the game saying they've been sending him to judo for the last year um, to get his sort of core strength and his upper body strength. And now he's he's a lot stronger physically and, and able to cope with the rigours of the division. So another example of, of Johnson's Bristol City maybe doing things a slightly different way. Always been quite an innovative manager. Uh, but yeah, great to see your Hungarian co- cousin, uh, Adam Nodge, doing <laughs> fantastic things in the centre of the park. I really hope we get a spell of, of, of Nodge fitness because he looks like a really tidy player. Now, here's your big win that you were asking from Leeds United, George, on last week's podcast. 4-0, quite large caveats, I think, come in the form of their opposition. Uh, Middlesbrough, not just the team that they're playing, but the amount of players that Borough had out injured. But this was your Leeds big win, uh, and that's five in a row for them now. Five in a row, um, four goals scored. Not just Bamford as well. The goals being shared out a bit. Good to see Helder Costa finally getting off the mark in the league. Uh, Matthias Klick, um, a player that I know you've had some doubts about recently as well, putting in a really good performance. Fantastic second goal as well. Um, and the funny thing with this, I thought, was that the first, I mean, when was Bamford's goal? After three minutes. That goal itself was so reminiscent of so many Leeds games we've seen this season until the goal itself, where it was a ball into Bamford. It was a fantastic chance. It was scrambled away and you think like, oh, here we go again. But then they end up getting that early goal that the you know their dominance, I guess, suggests they should. And then we see what happens afterwards. So I think that's going to be the key going forward now for Leeds is 
you know, we've seen so many times it take them a while to, to break teams down. I mean, we saw it in midweek against Reading where they left it pretty late. I think if they can just get their noses in front, which means that the opposition has to come out a little bit and try and get that equaliser, then we're going to see them picking apart teams very, very easily. So this, I mean, I know that the Borough's injury problems have worsened what, what is already a, a pretty thin-looking team. Um, and they're going to have some some big issues going forward. And you know, a four 0 win for Leeds at home to Middlesbrough isn't probably isn't far away from being par um, for this game. Uh, I feel like it's certainly some of the shortest odds we've seen any yeah. team since we've been doing the pod. I think one to, th- one to three yeah. on, wasn't it? I, th- I think that they I think they just need to use this as an understanding to see how much easier games are if they can just get ahead, mm-hmm. basically. And it's also <laughs> for for Leeds fans probably quite a relief to see them go ahead. They're not be pegged back within about three minutes. Great to see Paddy Bamford in the goals again. I just wanted to touch on a few tactical things here because I was looking back at the shape and formation. I noticed that Pablo and Costa were both starting, so I wanted to have a look at that because Bielsa, in general, we know is is pretty stringent on not making changes game by game, on on keeping things fairly uh, similar, uh, at least until injuries occur, which they haven't had too many of in the last few weeks. Uh, And what I noticed was something that uh, Adam Forshaw, there's a name drop for you, pointed out to me when we were on the Quest Highlights show together a few weeks ago, which is how certain players in that team, some unheralded players, have a versatility that allows Bielsa's leads to change shape, you know, almost every 10, 15 minutes if they need to, in a way that doesn't disrupt them because these guys allow them to do that. And Dallas is the one that I wanted to pick out. Um, If you watch the first 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes of this game, in which period leads go ahead, uh, Dallas is playing left back or left wing back maybe. Sometimes it's hard to nail down exact positions in Bielsa's team, but certainly the defensive left-sided player behind Harrison. But then quite quickly from about 15 minutes onwards, he goes into the centre of midfield. Um, Harrison basically has the whole of the left flank. Ailing tucks inside a little bit uh, to move alongside White and Cooper. Uh, and they change shape and Dallas is the key to that. They don't have to make a personnel change. They don't lose any quality because he's such a consistent, dependable player. And he allows them to do that ailing uh, again. He's a player whose versatility, um, along with Dallas, has only really been used to the max by Bielsa. uh, And they are central to this team's ability to, whatever the result, I think we can both agree, they they win the tactical battle pretty much every game leads. The, The way that they play is so good at this level that every other team bar West Brom has gone right we have to basically do whatever we can to stop them playing before we even think about what we're going to do Uh, and that's because of of players like these guys so I wanted to shout out Dallas it's cool to see Costa and Hernandez in the same team as well Hernandez very much playing centrally uh, on this occasion quite close to Bamford still getting on the ball a lot uh, and Costa playing right wing or right wing back again it's quite hard to tell. Uh, a good win for Leeds. Uh, Fulham keep the pressure on. They've won four in a row as well now. They beat Swansea 2-1 on, on Friday night. If you can cast your mind back to that one, George, we were in the Sky Studios and I just spent most of the game thinking how unfair it is that Alexander Mitrovic is playing in the second tier because even compared to when we last saw him 18 months ago, to me, he looks better. He looks more mature, certainly, but also... A bigger appetite for the battle, a better touch, uh, as much striker's instinct and absolutely racking up the goals. What did you think about the game in general? I thought that Swansea were really good. Um, did that surprise you? Possibly a little bit. I thought, I mean, it, it's a similar game to the one that we saw the week before on Sky against QPR, where, I mean, Fulham were by no means as poor as they were in spells against QPR. But at the same time, Swansea carved them open fairly easily um, and fairly regularly as well. And if you're looking at that front five, including the two sitting midfielders as being Grimes, Fulton, Ayu, Byers, Peterson, Surridge. I mean, on paper, that is just not a kind of top six championship team. So a couple of concerns again for Fulham, I would say that that yet again, they have faced a team and despite getting the three points, have, have been consistently, I mean, here they were pretty reliant on, on Rodak, the keeper, to keep them in the game. Um, a special mention for George Byers, though, who is a player that I know Swansea fans are very, very keen about. Um, and I thought he was brilliant all game. I think he's probably the best player on the pitch. Um, he got the goal, which Rodak, you know, it's one of those things where 
it wasn't one of the best things buyers did all game and it was yeah. Rodak's one poor moment but at the same time it was so crucial to, to what ended up happening um, with them getting back involved um, but I thought he was really lively the whole game I thought he was running his kind of not his tackling ability but his energy around the pitch and his willingness to get stuck in coupled with with a real quality on the ball um, and then obviously popping up for the header um, he was the player that I took uh, out of it as being someone who um, could be really important to Swansea going forward and someone that I'm looking forward to seeing a bit more of what I'm enjoying is Fulham getting a little bit more going forward from their fullbacks. Uh, certainly last weekend, it was Dennis O'Doy who whipped in a great cross to Kamara. And this weekend, it was Joe Bryan, uh, who always delivers fairly well going forward, although sometimes question marks about his defensive capabilities. Uh, and he whipped in a great cross, which helped contribute to uh, Fulham's first goal as well. And that's key for Fulham, the way that they play. Um if the opposition are so occupied with their front three plus Kearney, plus Onoma or Bobby Reed or whoever else is involved, then the fullbacks are key because you know there's no such thing as the perfect tactical plan. There's always going to be players that maybe are a bit more available, and that tends to be the fullbacks at this level. So if you can have fullbacks who are contributing, who are delivering well for Mitro. Uh, then you're on to something. And, and Fulham certainly have flown up the table in the last few weeks. Their fans will be absolutely delighted with that. And, you know, depending on what happens with West Brom and Preston on Monday night, which is a really, really, really tasty game, um, we're certainly looking a little bit like Leeds and West Brom, potentially Fulham with them, uh, are starting to move away from the rest of the pack. Now, what about this? Barnsley FC, 3-1 winners against Hull. Their first win since opening day. 17 league games without a win before it. Gerhard Struber masterminding the victory is a great escape on for Barnsley because I am not ruling them out just yet. I'm not ruling them out. If they're going to play like this, I'm don't, not ruling them don't out. Don't rule them out. But um, I feel like other people have ruled them out, including their own fans. Yeah. I mean, this was a big result and there's no denying it. And I, it's probably my favourite goal of the non-FA Cup weekend was, um, was Chaplin's winner. Just the aplomb with which he struck that left-footed volley. Um, you know, this is a team who haven't won since opening day, who've taken a two-goal lead and have and have been pegged back to 2-1, playing in front of their own fans under a new manager. I mean, that's a lot of pressure. And in the 95th minute, to uh, kind of hit a howitzer like that into the far corner. Um, and especially a player who hasn't necessarily acclimatised to life at Oakwell, as he'd have hoped. Um, so, yeah, I mean, really impressive again. Um, I'm really enjoying the role that Corley Woodrow is playing for this um, mm. for this Barnsley team under Struber as well Not he's no longer the goal scorer he's now basically playing as a it's kind of a deep line 10 I guess and he's absolutely everywhere um, yeah. and it's good to see because he's a fantastic footballer and they've got you know if they can get Chaplin kind of taking up those positions in the box that Woodrow was before and being that goal scorer kind of the, the more fox in the box role then I think that Woodrow playing in a more reserved uh, role where you can look at his creative qualities on top of his goal scoring ability and just his you know he's a very clever footballer and to be honest we've said it before he's their best asset so mm. get him on the ball more he's not just a striker who who plays off the last man and we're seeing that at the moment in his passing stats where before Struber had come in the most passes he had attempted in a single game was 37 that was against Charlton back in August the fewest in the game playing 90 minutes was 11 back in October against Huddersfield 11 and since then, since Struber's come in and shifted his position a bit, he's made 60 against Blackburn, 56 against Hull and 40 against Middlesbrough. So all three of them have immediately, you know, we can see the difference in, in how he's playing and what his role is within the team. And I think that it's only going to be, you know, it's only going to have a positive impact on them. It's funny, isn't it? Because if you, when we spoke to the chaps from the other Bundesliga, when we were getting our Gerhard Struber intel, uh, an interview that you can find on our YouTube channel if you haven't already. An interesting guy with an interesting background. And this season with Wolfsberger in Austria, he'd been playing this diamond formation. We wondered whether he might get stuck into that. And, and it was certainly out in full force here. But if you were trying to predict his Barnsley 11 with a diamond formation, Woodrow at 10 would absolutely not have been part of that. You would, you would have had him up front. He's their main goal threat. Um, but... I like things like this. I like ways in which managers think differently and remind us that we don't know everything and that we can't predict everything and we don't always know best because with maybe a bit more space to work with, with Brown and Chaplin, who you mentioned, playing in front of him, but drifting quite wide and, and pulling the centre-backs out of position potentially 
Woodrow, you can see potentially ha ha making quite a lot of damage or doing quite a lot of damage from there. Uh, Apo Halmer at the base of uh, midfield as well. Could that be a new role for him going forward? Probably not. Um, you know, you can see his defensive and physical qualities, whether or not he will ever be much of a, a ball progressor, which is probably what you want in that position as well. I, I'm not sure. But look, big credit to Barnsley. I, I realised as I said the words great escape and got a bit excited that after they beat Fulham on opening day, that was probably the most... Uh, that was probably the most praise I've given any team all season. And I remember being so excited about that. I remember talking about Anderson and Diaby at the back, like they were sort of Beckenbauer and Maldini. So I, I've, I've had to wait 17 games to do it again, which probably says a lot. But clearly uh, a bit of a soft spot for Barnsley on, on my side. And Hull, well, what a classic Hull week this was. They thrashed Preston 4-0 uh, and then went to Barnsley and lost 3-1. Another bit of championship news that you couldn't miss over the weekend George because everyone's very excited about it I think it's fair to say or at least the media are very excited about it I'm sure it's the type of thing that rival fans will be rolling their eyes at but we're going to talk about Derby County and we're going to talk about Wayne Rooney uh, their their one-all draw with QPR didn't leave a huge amount to analyze uh, but Rooney's presence in the dugout on the second row of the dugout we should point out uh, was the first time we've seen him at Pride Park with the team, part of the team, ahead of, of him potentially playing for the team, of course, from January the 2nd onwards. Uh, Ryan Conway for The Athletic covers Derby County. He's written about this with the headline, Rooney Mania has arrived, but how Koku must wish he could have him out on the pitch. And I think it's probably time, before we get to January, for us to <laughs> discuss what we think about Rooney joining Derby and specifically what we think he's going to do on the pitch because everything surrounding it, the media storm surrounding it. I mean, Ryan writes, the only thing missing here was the red carpet uh, and that sort of sums it up. I think for us, we should focus on what he can do on the pitch, what he might be able to do on the pitch. And uh, I'm finding it quite hard to work it out where he fits with this Derby team, what level he's at compared to championship level and how much of an impact we should expect him to have on this team on the pitch as someone who along with me was a quite young and very excited when when Rooney burst onto the scene all those years ago as a 16 year old how do you feel about Waza and what are we expecting to see and uh, with him and Derby I haven't really seen him play football for like 18 months so I don't really I don't know I, I think we can assume he hasn't got any quicker um but if you think that for the most part this season <laughs> Um, especially recently, Derby have been playing with a pretty immobile, quite experienced striker who hasn't scored many goals up top in Chris Martin. And so if he's going to play in that role, I think that he could be quite suited to it if you're playing with lots of people around you who are trying to create chances for you. If he's going to play in a more with, withdrawn role, then I fear for... Um, that's probably where I think where he would be best suited to have, to show his quality. We'll find out just how much stamina Dwayne like, Holmes has. I was going to say, if you feel like Dwayne Holmes' legs might, he's going to he's going to end up having the Rooney syndrome of becoming of you know topping off as a player at 28 because he's had to do so much running. So, <laughs> um, look, I, I think that there's got to be, but you cannot be a player of that quality and not still be able to have a big impact on a team. And I think we've seen often this season that Derby have been very reliant on Tom Lawrence for that star quality, that spark, that bit of talent that sets you apart from everybody else. Philip Koku has a difficult task on his hands to maximise that impact and to fit him into the team. But I did think it was interesting reading Ryan's piece. The quotes themselves from, um, from Koku, where he says... What's important at the moment is, is that he is involved in looking at the clips we select for the players to see how we prepare. It's important he is on the bench so he will get to know the players he'll be playing with in January. So, talking about him purely as a player there. But then he goes on to say he will also be an imp important for us as a member of the coaching staff. If he knows what we want in different systems and then we have him on the pitch, he can use that to translate it to the players. That doesn't really sound like a kind of coaching ideal here does it from Koku saying the reason he's going to be a great to have members of coaching staff is because he's basically going to be a coach on the pitch because he's going to be playing mm. so that looks just taking those two quotes alone it looks to me like Koku 
you know, is viewing Rooney's arrival purely as as a player. And that's probably unsurprising given the chat around by being like, well, if Koku comes under pressure, there's going to be one name that's going to be linked pretty heavily to the job. But I think it's it's quite significant to see there that in Koku's thinking, he's not talking about his impact in the changing room. He's not talking about how he's looking forward to him learning the ropes on the training pitch. It sounds like he's going to be a player and just a very senior player, which translates as player coach. And that could be interesting because I wonder if Wayne Rooney feels the same way about his arrival. I wonder if, if he sees his his playing uh, responsibilities as being the key and then the coaching coming as a uh, as a bit of an afterthought. I quite enjoyed what you were saying about him potentially filling in the, the Chris Martin role. Mm. Uh, I could see Thanks. that. I mean, Martin didn't play on the weekend. They went with Marriott and Waghorn up top. So Koku, not afraid to chop and change. And I, I've got some belief that Koku potentially with Rooney as as an advisor of sorts, will find the right way for him to, to make an impact. As you say, uh, I don't believe from what I've read from his DC United days that his technical ability has worsened significantly. I don't think he's dropped off a cliff completely as a, as a good footballer. I do worry, as you do, about stamina and legs, etc., etc., because he's been playing now for, well professional football for about 18 years but it will be fascinating the other thing that was interesting from the piece is Koku saying one of his concerns is that opposition will raise their game because Rooney is playing for Derby now I must admit I'm not the sort of person that even likes it when you know to use an example Sunderland go down to League One and the phrase it's everyone else's cup final gets trotted out I don't really like that phrase and I don't always buy into it that much to the extent that people seem to. So I like that this is being extended to an individual player on a pitch of 22 players, that there could be such an aura about Rooney being involved that the opposition will find, you know, 20% extra in order to to beat Derby. And that's one of Koku's big concerns. Um, But I mean, look, we've got a month till he makes his first appearance. I think it's the 2nd of January. I'm really excited about it. I'm, I'm I'm not ashamed to say it. If I've been caught up in some hype here and some big marketing ploy for uh, for Derby sponsors, then fine. But I just can't wait to see it. And it, it adds to the rich tapestry of championship football. Don't forget that if you haven't signed up to The Athletic and you would like to give it a go, then you can do so through our link, theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20. And what you'll get there is a 30-day free trial and then 50% off going forward, which will provide you access to, well, the best group of football writers under one roof in the world, we reckon, including occasionally George Ellick and Ali Maxwell. We are not including ourselves in that bracket, but always nice to be involved. Uh, They launched a few new podcasts last week as well, one of which I'm hosting with Michael Cox of Zonal Marking. It's a a tactical podcast more than anything. So if that's your bag, then make sure that you download, have a listen. Theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20pod is where to go for your free trial and your discount. So next we're going to go to Charlton. And the big news outside of the 3-1 defeat against Sheffield Wednesday was potential new owners. Now the EFL have not ratified the deal yet. They haven't given the full green light for East Street Investments to take over from Charlton. But, George, it looks like it will happen. And that means Roland de Châtelet's reign of meh <laughs> will end at Charlton. The the cloud that has been over the club for the last five, six years hmm. will dissipate. And that can only be a good thing. As for the new owners, we don't know much about them. We will be viewing them warily. But they've certainly said all the right things so far. Backing Lee Bowyer, talking about Lyle Taylor, saying lovely things to the fans, calling themselves custodians. It's taking over a club PR 101. At least they've read the handbook. Yes. Important to note that whenever there's a takeover of a club, it's met with optimism. I'm pretty sure that if we look back to when de Châtelet took over Charlton, there were probably a lot of Charlton fans out there rejoicing about the new investment and about the things that he was saying. And we've seen it in many other clubs as well. And I'm in no way saying that East Street investments are going to be the same. We, we don't know, but it's important not to give them credit before any credit's due. It's fantastic news for Charlton fans that Duchatelet is going to be selling the club. It's fantastic news for Charlton fans that they are talking about extending the contracts of key personnel there. 
those are the two important things but let's not give East Street Investments any credit for intention let's wait until we've seen some action because um, Charlton fans have been through a hell of a lot in the last couple of years in spite of what they've what they've had to deal with at the club they've managed to do unbelievable things on the pitch in the last 18 months or so but a little bit of a wobble now sees them seven points clear of safety um, the fact that they had a good start to the season doesn't change the fact that surviving on the on final day with this current squad with the wage bill they've got by the skin of their teeth on goal difference would be a fantastic achievement by Lee Boyer and Johnny Jackson the recent run of form doesn't change the fact that they need to be given more uh, they need to be given a new deal to, to tie them to the club because I cannot imagine there's anyone in the country who'd be doing a better job um, so let's come back here in four weeks six weeks and see what actual changes have been made at the club first but yeah brilliant news and delighted for Charlton fans very much a proof being in the pudding yes situation we've barely been served the starter <laughs> right we've got a bit of time there what I enjoyed was that only really and this is a shame due to injuries uh, Alfie Doughty played left back for Charlton on the, the weekend the reason I like that is that uh, go and watch Kingstonian in the Isthmian League now and then when I get some time off when they're playing not too far away from me Is that the second week in a row that you've given Kingstonian a, a, a nod? I think it might be Well I was at the game on Saturday against AFC Fylde in the FA Cup second round um, Kay's the better side between both boxes there's no doubt about that but Jim Bentley's Fylde just a little bit bigger and a bit stronger and also a professional outfit and, and lasted a bit longer but anyway Alfie Doughty was on loan from Charlton at Kingstonian last season he was playing as a pacey winger uh, and it's very rare for Kays to have a player who has played in the red and white hoops end up uh, at championship level certainly but he played really well on the weekend he got an assist for the goal uh, and looks like a, a prospect so that was very welcome but there weren't many other positives on the pitch for Charlton with the acceptance that they are missing something like 11 or 12 players that you could genuinely consider first team squad members uh, you know, they are having a bit of a slide at the moment. They also came up against the Sheffield Wednesday team, George, who hadn't been on a great run, but are still a pretty good side in this division. Certainly uh, a side, I thought, that would that would have too much for, for Charlton. Yeah, they're a side that I think need to be have a little circle around them at the moment because they're posting some very, very good numbers. Um, I think their extra four before this game is averaging about 2.1 per, per 90 which is very strong. Here, they beat Charlton 3-1 and they won the XG battle 2.4, 0.5. So, Gary Monk has fashioned a team who are creating chances at will. And because of the pragmatic approach of Monk, they're a team who are, I think, very rarely going to concede plentiful chances. I mean, they are struggling for clean sheets at the moment. That's the fifth consecutive game without keeping a clean sheet. Um, and it's the first win of those five games. It's but- almost not what we expected from Monk's Sheffield Wednesday, no, but, isn't it? I was expecting but, a lot of one nils and nil nils. But I think this is the right way around because I have I have confidence that he will tighten them up at the back. It was a good defensive performance against Charlton here. Macaulay Bond's goal was, was was fairly fortuitous in the way that in the way that it went in. Um, they've got a really tough game coming up on Saturday uh, hosting Brentford, and it feels to me like this is. I mean, I I think that Brentford's team uh, in terms of actual personnel is is. You know, miles clear of, of the Sheffield Wednesday team, but they're because the performance that Sheffield Wednesday are putting in, and because of everything about Brentford, I, this is a matchup between two teams that I think are the two currently outside the top six, um, who could get in amongst that automatic promotion race. The concern for Sheffield Wednesday being again that it's Gary Monk and Gary Monk's teams seemingly forget how to play football in about March the twelfth. So we'll see. Not many better sights than Barry Bannon shuffling out wide during a spell of possession, only to whip in a delicious left-footed cross onto the head of a flying Stephen Fletcher. We were treated to that in the first half as Sheffield Wednesday went 1-0 up. Fletcher also scoring a penalty, which really came with scenes that I love to see. Uh, Dylan Phillips, which is exactly what I'd want my goalkeeper to do, uh, doing everything in his power to try and put Fletcher off acting in a way that made him look like a bit of a div, but to be honest, a, a way that he hopes he's going to put the striker off, which is, again, what I would want my goalie to do. But of course, Fletcher sticking it past him 
and then getting right up in his face in celebration, which is absolutely his right as well. So, you know, that's exactly my sort of behaviour from both players. And, and I just wanted to flag that up because we want to see much more of that stuff. Uh, Forestieri started this game. He is easing his way back into this Sheffield Wednesday side. He is not quite at the level that we saw him in his in his time at Watford and and uh, his the, the early part of his spell at Sheffield Wednesday, um, but he is back and played off the left in a four four two. They have got a fair few ways of playing Sheffield Wednesday. They've got the uber direct approach of, of Fletcher and Nuhu up front, uh, but they've got those wide players as well. Murphy making an impact off the bench. Forestieri now involved. Harris has had a good season, uh, and of course Bannon and Lee and Hutchinson. The Sheffield Wednesday team still has plenty of options and uh, I'm glad to hear you circling them and just keeping a, an eye on them. We'll also be keeping an eye on Cardiff under Neil Harris. George, uh, their first game, they were 2-0 down against Charlton but fought back to draw 2-2 and since then they've beaten Stoke in the week. Narrow 1-0 win, not one for the purists. Uh, and now this, uh, a 1-0 win at Nottingham Forest and maybe we're seeing the start... Don't say it. Maybe we're seeing the start of what this Neil Harris team will nice. look like, which is <laughs> fairly well organised at the back, very comfortable not having the ball. So far, so Neil Warnock, but potentially, potentially a little more exciting going forward and attacking with a little more speed, maybe a little more width. Yeah, I'm just glad. I thought you were going to say maybe we're seeing a new manager bounce and I got upset for a second, but you didn't, so it's fine. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that. I mean, that is the narrative that comes from the, from that run of results but i mean this was a game that kind of middle name narrative so. this was this was a game ali, ali narrative maxwell <laughs> this was a game that they didn't deserve to win if we're honest about it um they went ahead fairly early but nottingham forest had you know more than enough chances to uh to get themselves at least level and if this game and the way it was played was played out x many times cardiff wouldn't hold on but what it will do, and you know, that's no disrespect for Cardiff at all, because it's a it's an important victory, and it's it's seven points from three games since Warnock left. And I think that withstanding a barrage for for seventy five minutes will probably do something for a team who've really struggled to keep teams out this season. I think for Curtis Nelson, Naden Flint, and, and and Neil Etheridge to withstand that and to come out of it knowing that they can do it and they can, you know, play that low block and keep teams at bay even if they're conceding 32 shots, is significant in itself. So even though I'm not particularly impressed by this performance necessarily, I do think that the manner of victory could almost trigger the performances to match the result. Lee Tomlin's looking well. Yeah, he looks fit. There you go. Uh, that will be a boon for Neil Harris. Uh, another 1-0 away win is Stoke and Blackburn. Before that, I want to talk to you about Reading and their away win at Wigan. Wigan's home form now shot to pieces, which was always the concern. Uh, no surprise to see Wigan Athletic scoring from a corner, consistently their biggest threat, uh, and going ahead in that game. And then, George, potentially Puskas. something that we didn't <laughs> expect, Puskas turning into Robert Lewandowski in the second half. Yeah, I mean, he hadn't scored for, for a long while and suddenly scores three goals in, in five minutes and <laughs> at a really important time of the season. The first one was a brilliant goal, well worked by himself with a fantastic finish. He just strikes me as a player who's obviously in a similar way to, to Lucas Zhao, I guess. He's a, someone who, you know, when he's on it, can be really, really good. But I, I have a bit of a concern that that isn't going to happen too often. Um, but if Which he for can, the money spent, is, yeah, you, it's, you it's would, still a lot of money. And, you know, I poke fun at Reading fans because when he signed... They said that he was going to fire them to the, to the championship um, title. Hasn't really happened that way. I should point out there's only a couple of people out there who said <laughs> that. Um, it hasn't happened that way. But, you know, results and performances like this are obviously crucial for them. And um, it feels like under Mark Bowen, they have moved away from being considered relegation battlers, which, it, it, you know, which was the first objective and, you know, first objective completed, which is something that he should get a lot of credit I mean, for. Is it, Amazing that Bowen again, you know, he's been in the job for like four weeks. They're doing very well. His post-match interview straight away again. I don't want to be a team that people want to play against. I want to be a. It, it, it's like, it's like that's all he wants to say. That's his his media is he's just going to say that to every single time he gets asked a question. Nothing else. He's not going to call on any players, playing style, anything. He just wants to be known to be a team who's going to do the dirty stuff best. And I don't know if that's necessarily the case here. Um, they're one 0 down with ten minutes to go and. 
had a lot of had a lot of the ball and had a lot of uh, a lot of chances. But um, missing yeah. Swift and and Ajaria, we should say, so yeah. having to do things a little bit differently, and perhaps that's why it was especially important for Puskas to come to the fore. I mean, the first goal was a penalty, and it was like the very fact of slotting away a penalty turned him from you know, the striker with the least confidence you've seen in front of goal into, as I said, the prime Lewandowski. So big, big three points for Reading. Uh, we've spoken before about McCleary being back in the fold. He was starting again in this game. Um, they, they just, he's given them quite simply more options in their squad, which is very, very valuable. And I think Bowen deserves a lot of credit. Maybe he does bang on a little bit too much about the way that he wants them to play. Um, but at least he's not... Graham Jones setting his just just copy and pasting the same starting eleven and the same tactics for completely different match situations. Uh, one more game in the Championship to touch on: uh, Stoke nil, Blackburn one. Back down to earth for Michael O'Neill. Michael, Michael O'Neill. Which one? <laughs> Sorry, Michael <laughs> O'Neill, the Stoke manager. It was back down to earth. The funny thing is, I was trying to do a really bad gag, a really bad pun. And in saying Michael O'Neill instead of Michael O'Neill, I've ruined it. Anyway, Dak down to earth for Stoke with Bradley Dak scoring. Yeah. Dak has endured a very good goal scoring run in the last few weeks. He's on for his best championship season with 18 last season and 15 the season before or the other way around. Actually, he's already on nine this season. Just because we're used to it doesn't mean we shouldn't keep pointing it out. This kid is just absolute goals. He has goals. Um, and it's funny, I mean, Dak is obviously at the forefront of everything good that Blackburn do, and he is more important than anyone else. But you've got Tony Mowbray, who a lot of fans were asking for him to be relieved of his duties, and suddenly Blackburn are four points off the playoffs. Um, That's crazy. So let's maybe give Tony a nice nod just to say, well done, Tony. You've always been such a big fan of Tony Mowbray, and it, it genuinely warms my heart. I think, like... Top half finish on the cards at the yeah. moment. I mean, it, it's very early, but it's only December. Um, but, but at the same time, they he deserves that credit. They've won eight games this season. That's as many as Bristol City have won. Um, they are looking in decent form. Gallagher starting to get amongst the goals to justify um, some of that transfer fee as well. You know, it's it's not. I, I don't think they are going to get near the playoffs. But but at the same time, there are a lot of managers in the division. I would say who are doing a worse job than Tony Mowbray, and that that needs pointing out. Next year's AGM, we're going to stay at Tony Mowbray's bed and breakfast, which mm. listeners, which really really regular listeners will know as a nice nod to earlier on in the season. Uh, Michael O'Neill says it was a lack of belief. Now, I mean, we could have told him that managers and managers before him at Stoke have failed to get this squad on a mental level, on a personality level, working. And that is Michael O'Neill's number one task over the next few months. Whatever it is that makes this squad lack belief, whatever it is that has them losing games, drawing games because they lack that belief, he's got to turn it around. And, you know, we're told from his Northern Ireland time that he is a fantastic man-manager and if he can't do it, I would worry that no one will be able to do it because Rowett had one way of doing things. Nathan Jones had a very different way of doing things. Now Michael O'Neill. I mean, I'm already worried for him because although it's early days, this lack of belief has been such a, an issue for now quite a long time for this Stoke side. So work to do for Michael O'Neill, that's fair to say. If we, if we assumed, George, that Stoke would be very simply moving up the table now towards the, the mid point of the table, then, well, we've been sort of rudely awakened, I suppose, because still very much in 23rd place, uh, 11 points behind QPR, who are 16th. So a long way off it at the moment, Stoke, and, and much improvements needed. Um, we touched on it at the beginning of the pod, George. It was not a classic weekend of FA Cup action, but Oxford United march on. Good win against Walsall. Is there a better team to support in the whole country at the moment? You're in all the competitions. Is it 15 unbeaten? 16, I think. Unbelievable. Uh, in all competitions and in every single competition as well. Second favourites to get promotion out of League One. 
Uh, yeah, it's, uh, if you told me this was going to be the case back in September, I'd have been very surprised. I think we can dig up some audio of you nope. just at the very start of the season saying some interesting things about this well, Oxford side. But maybe I, sh- I can tease then, um, and I can't really say why, but I'll be sitting down and meeting, not for anything on the Not The Top 20 channels, I should say, but um, yeah, going to be chatting to Carl Robinson fairly soon. Ho- nice. Hopefully the beginning of a lovely friendship. You can give us the inside info. Mm. I wanted to run through a couple of FA Cup notables for you in case you missed them, George, in case the listener missed them. I'm sure they won't have done, but uh, no big upsets, which is a good thing for the EFL teams because at this stage of the competition, if there's an upset, it tends to be a non-league team beating an EFL side. Um, within... The games we did see Port Vale beating Cheltenham away from home. That was notable. A really another good result for Port Vale, who, you know, they're not challenging at the very top of League Two, but they're not a million miles away from the playoffs. And with the new owners in place doing wonderful things and with the players and the coaching staff working well and providing a good team for their fans to support for the first time in a few years, I really want to applaud Port Vale at every opportunity, just in the last six weeks alone. Those who follow Port Vale away from home have seen them beat Bradford, Crewe and now Cheltenham. And that is really, really good. Um, Hartlepool coming back from 2-0 down to draw with Exeter. Um, The most notable thing for me here was Exeter's goalkeeper, Johnny Maxted, with a really bad mistake for Hartlepool's equaliser. The reason that's notable for me was Maxted kind of owes his EFL career to the FA Cup. He was playing for Geisley two years ago against Accrington Stanley and he did an unbelievable job keeping Accrington at bay. Stanley then bought him off the back of that. Uh, It didn't work out for him there, but he dropped just one level to Exeter and I thought that was a a good example of the FA Cup which can give F and can take F away. Johnny Maxted there having a bit of a howler. Uh, Ivan Tony's goal for Peterborough against Dover. Absolutely sensational. If you haven't seen that yet, head to at NTT20pod on Twitter where we shared it yesterday. And last but not least, an own goal from George Ellicobi, which just broke my heart. Your long lost brother, your name twin. My best friend. Your best friend and an own goal scorer in the FA Cup second round. That's it from us this week, guys. I hope you enjoyed the pod. Hope you enjoyed listening to us ruminate on what was an exciting weekend in the championship. Plenty more to come over the next month or two, over the festive period. I dare say we might do uh, some 1-24 to redraws around Christmas time. That's always a a really lovely Christmas gift and uh, something that we will enjoy doing over some mulled wine, no doubt. Thanks for listening. Do share this podcast, a retweet on Twitter, uh, a link posted on a forum if we've discussed your team and you found it interesting. Anything like that helps us continue to grow. And we are still reliant on you guys to help us to do that so we would be grateful for any shares that you can provide us follow us on twitter and instagram at ntt20pod for all the updates and we'll talk again later on in the week